Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading, and you're listening to the I Love Muzzleloading.com podcast. Today, we have a special guest. We're talking to Alex from the Frontier Trading Company YouTube channel. If you have any interest in muzzleloading or living history on YouTube, I would hazard a guess that the Frontier Trading Company YouTube videos have been recommended to you here lately. Alex brings a fresh perspective to the living history community and muzzleloading by association. He's just recently built his first flintlock muzzleloader to go along with his interpretations and his videos. It was a great conversation. I'm recording this having just finished with the phone call, but um, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode, and uh, we'll catch you after the show. My name is Alex. Uh, I run the Frontier Trading Company YouTube channel, um, but Frontier Trading Company actually started you know, long before I was even born as a program area at a Boy Scout camp. And I grew up in Northwest Ohio. I was raised in scouting. I was actually was raised in the city, in the suburbs. And both of my parents had come from the country and wanted to see me get a, a good kind of grip on real life skills and the things that can only be learned out at summer camp and stuff like that. And so it was scouting for me as a young guy. And I uh, got into that program in kindergarten, I believe, and was involved all the way through my senior year in high school. But you know, my natural trajectory as a scout led me to work at a scout camp, and one of the program areas there was called Frontier Trading Company. Staff dressed up in buckskins, and they threw tomahawks. There's a forge. They had very small livestock, chickens and goats and things like that in a cabin. And some other really cool activities, and they would teach merit badge classes like American Heritage, Indian Lore, Wilderness Survival. It's a great time. So I fell in love with that as a scout. Like I said, my natural trajectory in that program led me to work there on staff. I spent four summers in that program area um, and just adored it. I spent you know, a lot of my, my time in the period clothing, living in this little cabin, uh, was able to interact with around 3,000 scouts every summer. And wow. when I left for college, yeah, it was, it was quite the job. I just, I loved it. And getting to work out there with, it was a group of about 100 guys and 20 or 30 girls were usually on staff at camp and so you just you come to call these guys your brothers and the girls become like sisters to you and it's just a it's a great experience working at a summer camp in general but mm -hmm. i'm also the son of a history teacher i grew up on daniel boone and davy crockett and all those shows that kind of mentored along the generation before me in this hobby um and so i kind of have similarities in that way to some of the, the older guys that are involved mm -hmm. but yeah between growing up really valuing history and uh, working in that program, when it was time for college, I wanted to keep the momentum going, you know. And so something I did, I started this YouTube channel named after Frontier Trading Company, which was this program area that I loved so much. And unfortunately, one summer after I left camp and had come to college, they actually discontinued the program area at the summer camp. So I'm kind of the lone agent for the Frontier Trading Company, yeah. It's uh, It was a bummer. It hit me pretty hard, but it was really only more motivation to continue making videos. And so yeah. I think that pretty much brings us up to where I'm at today. Up to the present day. Do you feel like an original, like first agent of a trading company, like out on the frontier? I mean, you're taking you know, the spirit <laughs> of this <laughs> into a new age. <laughs> if, uh, if being uh, in the city with in a dorm room with my box full of 18th century clothes makes me 
somebody like from the frontier being out in the wilderness with their you know, box of supplies, then I guess maybe there is a similarity. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think those guys may have thought that you had it a little bit rougher. <laughs> depending. Yeah, maybe so. So you're fairly young. You're not somebody like me, almost 30, going back to school. We hear all the time that young people aren't interested in history. What does it feel like being somebody so young in the living history community and being so active? I mean, you're reaching a ton of people with the videos that you're putting out. Yeah, I appreciate that. I don't know if I'd call it a ton, but I've been uh, very honored by you know everybody that chooses to watch my videos and things. Um, I would say that it's it's really exciting and it's a lot of fun in two ways. Um, first of all, us younger guys, guys like you and me, I would definitely include you in this group. Thank you. And probably folks even a little older. Um, but you know, we have the privilege of pioneering this space, this hobby or a profession for some people on the internet, which I think is important because the internet can reach pretty near everybody these days. And it's in general, a good thing for any community to increase its visibility. You can attract new people. You can keep a consistent stream of content for those who are already involved. Um, it, it covers all the bases. Second, I would say that there's a really satisfying feeling of legacy. There's, there's definitely an established generation of people who have taken this hobby seriously and they've developed it into what it is today. And when you can step up and act as a steward for all of their efforts, it gives you a really good sense of purpose and responsibility. Of course, you want to do them proud, and you also want to keep on advancing the hobby yourself. So it, it feels good to be caught in the middle between those two groups, between mm -hmm. the past and the future, and to be carrying on this knowledge. It definitely gives you a sense of pride. Um, I would say, as for being so young, you know, those are two things that with internet access, you know, anybody could really fulfill that, um, that criteria that I kind of just listed, but on a more personal level, as a, as a younger person, um, things are a little lonesome, to be honest. And that's partly my fault. You know, I'm not a part of a formal reenacting unit or anything like that. My life is just too busy. I'm in college. I'm yeah. back and forth between school and home. And I just don't have the security and the structure in my life right now to pursue that. But, that's not really what I mean either. I think that the problem for a lot of people my age is that they don't have friends who are already doing this. So there's no natural in and they end up staying out because they don't know about it or they're intimidated by a group of older people, like older adults and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, personally, I don't really have a problem with older people. A lot of my good friends are grown adults and I'm really comfortable in that space. But there's a lot of teens and 20 somethings who probably aren't. And I think yeah. for that reason, I don't have a huge community of young people that are my age that are also involved. So in that aspect, it can be a little lonesome. When you're at events, it's a lot of older people who are, the conversation just trends towards topics that are more fitting of adults. You know, top, people are talking about their, their wives or their husbands or uh, how work is going and stuff like that. And it's not always something that you can just jump right into and, yeah. and you know, just feel comfortable immediately. Mm -hmm. It takes a little warming up too. Yeah, for sure. I, that's something I've, uh, having grown up like I have in muzzleloading, uh, most of my friends are almost three times my age, <laughs> you know, or not, not yeah. most, but quite a few. Um, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm in the same boat, you know, it's a lot of things that they're, they have experienced. I, I just haven't gone through, but I, I share the similar passions, um, about all of this that, that they do. And I think that's a really great way to connect with people. 
and I, I don't think that it's, you know, not that you implied this in any way, but I, I think it, it can be intimidating for younger people just because, um, you know, people that are veterans in all of this, they, they know almost everything. Uh, and it, it can be, I don't care if you're looking at shooting sports in general or just muzzleloading or just living history. Um, it can, it can be rough, you know, just, just starting. You don't want to say the wrong thing or, or just for yourself kind of feel or sound stupid. And, uh, it kind of takes a little bit to take that first plunge and, and really get into it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think when people come together around this and they're able to focus on the, the passion that you have in common, that's where younger people like me are just you know, beginners in general. You could be getting into this at any age. Mm-hmm. If you can focus on that common bond, that's where people just feel so welcome. And it's it's kind of been a privilege, you know, as I've been involved to connect with people who are willing to focus on my passion for it rather than my actual skill set. And through that, you know, my, my skill set has um, progressed you know, over yeah. the past couple of years. That's what I love about your channel and kind of the community that you're building is all the, or most of the comments that I see, I guess I can't say all, um, cause I haven't read them all, but, uh, a lot of the comments <laughs> are, are really kind and really supportive of you. And that's something that's just really refreshing to see. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's encouraging too, because yeah, I know that I'm doing things wrong. I like, I fully own the fact that I'm not doing everything right. I don't yeah. know everything. Yeah. Um, I don't know that anybody does, but there are certainly more experienced folks out there. And a lot of them have, they'll comment and they'll say, Hey, I noticed this was wrong in the video. And by the way, here's a great resource for you to reference as you try to correct it. And Mm -hmm. that's just so valuable, so valuable, especially because like I said, I'm not a part of any formal unit or anything. So I really do rely on feedback like that to improve and progress. Yeah. Do you think being a part of a unit of some kind in the future would be something that you'd be interested in? Or are you more on the, you know, not necessarily lone wolf, but um, I guess, are you interested in the, the military side of, of living history? Or are you kind of sticking to your own kind of avenue here? Yeah, you know, I, I one of the things that really fed my passion, I, I failed to mention it earlier, but I did grow up in a city that was pretty heavily touched by War of 1812 history. Um, Northwest Ohio area, the old Northwest. And so that portion of America's history was relevant. You know, in my city in the summertime, you can hear cannon fire rolling down Main Street. That's uh, common to see reenactors and living history and all that. And that was only ever military history. There's nothing else. There's not muzzleloading shoots or anything like that. It's, hey, we're all going to descend on the fort for the weekend and reenact an actual battle or a siege or you know, whatever it may be that year, or that weekend. Um, and so that's, that's really where I got my start. You know, I was interested in history, but I don't know that it would have taken this avenue with me sitting here today in my dorm room with a box of, uh, in clothes and a, a hunting shirt and my uh, antler knife and all this stuff. It probably wouldn't have gone down that road, um, if not for that community. So it does kind of hold a special place in my heart. Um, I've been invited to participate in you know, various you know, local units and stuff in my hometown. And it's never really grabbed my attention as much as this has just because of, you know, the phase that I'm in in my life. I can film these videos that I make pretty much anywhere as long as I have a good backdrop of trees and things like that. Um, And as for the future, you know, I I could see it um, someday when I'm settled down and everything. But I think that my main focus will always be on my own channel and this kind of lone long hunter deal that I'm kind of slowly developing. Um, I could definitely get involved in a group, but 
yeah, I, my, my main focus, I think will always be on kind of building my own community around my interests and watching it grow and trying to nurture that group. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great thing about living history. I mean, there's a lot of people really into the military history and I'm kind of like you, I'm, there's a lot of people doing the military history and it's not something that I am super interested in. Um, I've kind of made my friends and and the community that I see at events, uh, kind of jumping around Indiana here more on the uh, persona, you know, the character side of things or the traditional craftspeople representing the trades and the people that, you know, you know, made furniture and, and clothing and things uh, out on the frontier. And I think there's so that's something I really enjoy about all of this is there's a place for everybody, no matter your interest in all of this. Yeah, agreed. And and you mentioned the trades, and that's something I had kind of neglected to talk about. I think the trades especially are important. Getting interested in a trade, mm-hmm. um, you know, for me, having recently built a flintlock, I had a, a look into this 18th century gunsmithing yeah. world. Um, and that's something that I think is really interesting. And I'm sure these guys that are getting into blacksmithing and making knives or beading or quill work or any manner of historical trades and crafts and, and projects and things, it's really connecting you to a past that is relevant. There are skills that I learned building my flintlock, patience, uh, you know, the just basic generic things that can be translated into skills that I'm looking to develop as a college student. Yeah, And that kind of carryover, I think, is really important. That's what keeps it relevant. I don't know, and I can't speak from experience because I haven't been involved in military history, uh, reenacting and things like that as much. But I don't know that that always carries the same sort of uh, translatable skills that can be directly applied to other things. Yeah, I'm sure that it's very rewarding and it's probably a lot of fun. Um, but I think that the trades like you said, it's, it's kind of a special thing in that way that you can, you know, develop these translatable skills. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What, let's dive into the, your first flintlock because you told me a little bit about this before the show. And and I think it's just a, I'd like to have you kind of tell us about that experience so that other people out there looking to build their first flintlock, regardless of age, you know, I'm not going to pin this whole episode on, on you being young, because uh, anybody can get into <laughs> muzzleloading and living history at any age. But tell us a little bit about that experience. And I think my main question I'd like you to answer is why did you want to build one versus going out and find one to purchase? Yeah, so... My flintlock experience, to really understand why it was so validating and so special to me, you have to consider that I spent four or five years during my high school summers and that period between high school and college pursuing this 18th century living history hobby without a rifle. And I was working at summer camp. You can't carry firearms on scout property, at least not ones that aren't owned by the scout camp itself. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I had an old heirloom rifle that I've always had uh, from two nails in my bedroom, um, and I always wanted to bring that out, and they had told me that they'd fill the barrel with concrete and put an orange tip on it. And that's That was the stipulation. Um, so it's unfortunate. This is a camp that, you know, this program area specifically, everybody used to carry black powder firearms, but times have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case, for years, I was – just salivating over these rifles. I'd find pictures online. Um, I was aware of you know, Jim Kibler's kits, which is what I ended up building long before I ever gave him a call for the first time. I had watched all the videos on his channel. I've been watching NMLRA videos. 
really in an effort to educate myself and to begin to come to a point where I could speak the language mm -hmm. of, of muzzleloading because I thought that getting my first rifle would come down to ordering a custom-built gun. Um, the road to wanting to build one instead of buying one or wanting to commission a custom one, I'll kind of group that in there. I know there are people who will go that route. Um, that really began as I was looking around online and couldn't find something with the quality that I thought would carry me through this hobby for the next 40 or 50 years. I got a lot of working time left here to learn and grow, and I wanted a rifle that would you know, grow with me mm -hmm. um, that I could carry forever. Hopefully just one because yeah. I'm coming at this from the perspective of a relatively uh, – not financially uh, stable college student. I got a lot of bills <laughs> coming in and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So broke college kid here trying to get his hands on a really expensive, high-quality rifle is thinking, I'm going to have to have one custom built and budget this out and really be um, mindful of my spending, or I'm going to end up with a cheaper one from Cabela's or Bass Pro. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There's a lot of people who will, who will choose a, a little cheaper gun, and I'm sure they work great. But I had bought some some cheaper gear before uh, in my time at summer camp, and I was just totally disillusioned with this idea of getting something poor quality and wasting money yeah. in the long term, having to buy something again. So building, you know, building my own came about as I was going through this kind of self-regimented uh, learning cycle, trying to figure out what exactly I wanted in a custom gun, and I realized that. This is not something that is totally inaccessible to beginners. You can get involved here and purchase a kit gun and build it yourself. And what better way to ensure quality that's going to last 40 or 50 years than to do it yourself and mm -hmm. have control over everything? Um, and this is something that I really did. I determined I want to be a control freak about this process. I want to know everything that's going into this rifle. I want to touch it, have my hands on it. Um, and make it almost like an extension to my body. Like these frontiersmen would write about carrying their rifle felt like a piece of them. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I wanted to have that feeling despite, you know, not being actually out on the frontier and everything. I, I wanted to recreate it as much as I could. So building a gun, you know, hands down, eventually I came to this conclusion over years of researching this stuff and the opportunity didn't really come to me until I got to college here. Um, my university has a program they'll grant you $2,000 to pursue some kind of creative or artistic endeavor. Um, and when I first heard about that, my first thought was actually that I should probably upgrade a lot of the equipment that I use for my YouTube channel. Um, like I said, broke college kid here is using a, a broken tripod from Amazon and an iPhone to film all the videos. So You're that was my first thought. No, no. You're using an um, iPhone? Oh, man, that makes it all the better, dude. Uh, I couldn't. Yeah. Be, that's just amazing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's uh, it's uh, it's a pretty it's it's what you'd probably expect from a college kid. Um, yeah, the the tripod is actually held held together with duct tape. Nice. And uh, audio stuff. It's a cheap lav mic that runs to an old cell phone. I tape that to my back and and talk into it and stuff. So um, that was my first thought. And unfortunately, that doesn't really fulfill this criteria of being an endeavor. You know, it's not an experience. And so immediately, I thought, no way that they would let me go and build a flintlock. And after a really long process, they did. And I took that money and pursued a NMLRA seminar at Western Kentucky University, building a Kibler kit. These same things that I had just drooled over throughout the whole pandemic. I was online. My companions throughout the pandemic, being stuck in my dorm room for a year, became Jim Kibler, 
uh, you and some of your content on the NMLRA channel and a handful of others that I just started watching religiously. So that was my window into nature and history um, and being stuck in the city. It was, that was it. So when word came that, you know, your money's cleared, you can do this. The day after that money landed in my account, I was calling Jim Kibler. Um, he picked up the phone. He said, this is Jim. And I, I was like, oh, my God, you're Jim Kibler. And I just I was like, I have so much respect for your work. I just I, like bubbled over completely. And he was like, OK, <laughs> calm down. He's a pretty humble guy. Yeah. But, you know, that that humbleness comes with probably having one of the best kits in the market. And so this opportunity, I knew I couldn't pass up on it. Um, of course, I had to supplement this with a little bit of my own money. I needed a hotel for enough nights to spend a week in Western Kentucky University and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. for the most part, the university bore the brunt of the financial strain for this project and is what really enabled me to pursue it. But yeah, I got to the class. Um, I came through the door with my kit in one hand, toolbox in the other, and I was staring Wallace Gussler right in the face. And that's another moment I just bubbled over. I was like, oh my goodness. Um, just I couldn't, con I mean, I tried my best to, to contain it, not to seem like a, a blubbering idiot in front of these guys. But yeah, man, it's I tough. mean, it is. I talk about an honor to learn from somebody that's been doing this all their life. I, I mean, true professionals, these people. They do it for a living. It's all they've ever done in most cases. Um, just a fantastic experience, though, with the, uh, the NMLRA class at WKU there. Um, boy, I don't, I don't even I don't know where to start or how deep to go about the, the class content, but it was it was spectacular. Um, I guess I'll, my, I'll just I'll cover maybe my biggest takeaway from the class. Yeah, yeah. Um, that being that. I, I came, I arrived expecting a step-by-step walkthrough. Here's how we build the gun. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, nothing really you know, gave me that opinion. It's just what I envisioned. For whatever reason, I thought Wallace Gussler would stand in the middle of the room and build one himself on a bench and walk us through each step. Here, you file this, um, and then you stand on this, and you, you know, whatever, and walk us through it. And instead, it was pretty self-guided. He what he did was he enabled us to walk ourselves through it by explaining the how and the why. And that's the kind of knowledge that you can only get from a lifetime of building guns. Yeah. Uh, it was true mentorship in the fullest sense of the word in that he was not critical of our mistakes. He would take it and roll with it, make things work. Um, very helpful, offered advice, uh, but knew also when, when, and, and, seem to just know where the line was with, you know, your pride and your vision for things, never crossed any of those lines, um, was very empathetic to our, our emotional, you know, experience. We're all in here with these expensive kits doing it for the first time. We're kind of giddy and anxious. And, yeah. um, it was just rolled with the punches and it was great. But like I was saying, the how and the why was just so important. And it's the kind of stuff that, you know, will inform my pursuit of this hobby and my videos and it's, it's going to bleed over into everything else mm -hmm. um, as I pursue this in the coming 40, 50, 60 years. So um, just a great experience between meeting everybody, identifying these mentor figures, folks like Wallace um, and getting a, this opportunity to pick their brain, not to mention uh, there's actual period guns there from the 18th century. There's all kinds of artifacts and various collections of things. And it was just, phenomenal yeah. absolutely phenomenal i couldn't have asked for anything more 
Well, that's great. That warms my heart. And I mean, Wallace is a great guy, and, and the folks who put on that class down there are, are just second to none. I mean, they've been doing that for a long time, and, and hearing that you had a great experience going in there is kind of your first time, that really that really warms my heart. That, that's That's really great. Yeah, they did a great job. Like I said, it was accessible to beginners, and that was key. And there were guys there that were nowhere near beginners. They'd been mm-hmm. in it for 30, 40, 50 years. Um, but everyone there was perfectly willing to work with you and mentor you through the whole process. And that's just – it it validated efforts for years researching and mm-hmm. coming, bringing money together for this and everything. It was just it was perfect. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about the rifle that you built? You know, which kit did you get? Which caliber? What wood? You know, how'd you finish it? Sure, sure. Uh, it was a 50 caliber colonial kit. Um, Jim Kibler's got a range of different woods that you can choose. And then within maple, there's uh, various grades of wood. And I was on the phone with them and had expected to get the, uh, the cheapest one, standard curly maple, mm-hmm. and ended up going for the full upgrade, the extra fancy curly maple, as I sat there on the phone and thought, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yeah. What am I doing? And so I went with the best possible grade of wood. Um, Jim's got great locks and barrels. His locks are made on a CNC machine. The barrels, I believe, come from rice barrels. And then he's had work uh, either in the finishing process on the exterior or um, in some aspect of the actual rifling of the barrels. So it's a collaboration. Mine says Kibler Rice on the bottom. Oh, nice. Uh, which I think is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and all in all, I mean, great experience building the actual kit. As far as the finish went, um, I had a bottle of his uh, iron nitrate mm-hmm. and brushed that on there, used the heat gun. I actually did the whole finishing experience at home after the class. I didn't quite get to that point, but I was ready to finish it there. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a little carving on it and things. Oh, and cool. there's, some, there's some pictures, yeah, on my the community section. It's a tab at the top of my YouTube channel. I posted a picture, and pretty soon I'll be putting up a video I actually just filmed yesterday of uh, you know the actual rifle itself and talking about the build experience, but um, good experience. Finish went on well. I was really nervous about it. You put that iron nitrate on there and things kind of get a green hue oh, yeah. to them. Yep. And I was just, I mean, I, I couldn't leave the room. I couldn't put it down and just let it dry. I was just sitting there staring at it and my heart was racing and I'm all sweaty. Yeah. And I was a mess. Like I was so emotionally <laughs> invested in this project that yep. to see it all turn green, it just like turned my stomach. But um, I had some uh, permalin finish that I put on there. Um, and I, just to watch that color explode mm-hmm. across the, that extra fancy curly maple, um, that was, that was a, a treasured moment. And I wish I would have gotten it on film because it was just, it was beautiful. It was perfect. It was exactly what I wanted. Um, and it all worked out great, but the 50 caliber, I, I hope will be enough to take down a deer. That's my oh, ambition yeah. in the next few years. Um, when I got to the class, there were actually, uh, Jim Wright was there with the rifle used in the American Pioneer video series, uh, oh, cool. building the Daniel Boone rifle. Mm-hmm. And he was there with the rifle. Oh, nice. Um, and I didn't handle it or anything. I don't really <laughs> feel like I am of enough uh, quality as a gun builder to even appreciate it if I had handled it. But um, I, def- I got to take a look at it and was looking down the bore of that thing. And I said to him, I was like, man, this is a, this is a massive ball. This thing's got to shoot. And I believe it was a 68. Um, you know, I, I arrived at the class unaware that rifles had been of that 
caliber mm-hmm. uh, at all during the 18th century. So a lot of education you know, took place at that class. I learned a lot. Uh, but 50, you know, as I ordered the gun, I figured you know, that's a half inch. That's pretty standard stuff. Um, and I just, that was kind of a, just a command decision, you know, to pick up something that sounded familiar to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's the gun. And like I said, there's a video coming soon. I'm, I'm really going to deep dive. I haven't edited that down yet, but it might come out to be around 40 minutes. So oh, that's going to be wait. pretty in depth, uh, covering the rifle. I'm looking at it now, man. It looks great. Good color <laughs> yeah, on it. And I mean, you kept all the nice lines that are there and you, you added some of those, those incised carving lines too. It looks great. Yep. Yeah. I just, I did a little curly cue around that entry thimble mm-hmm. below the ramrod. Um, and just some real, real basic stuff. I really discussed with Wallace, um, you know, how to approach carving as a beginner. I came thinking, you know, I'll assemble the rifle on day one. I'll spend a few days carving it and then I'll just, learn from Wallace on the last day, which was just my, you know, naivete towards all this, um, and found out how much time, what an investment it really is to build one. And, uh, we had, you know, he advised me against trying to get into any kind of real deep, intricate carving in that stock or anything. Mm -hmm. And I ended up leaving. I was really proud of what I had given the amount of work and everything, despite, you know, I told parents, girlfriend, everybody, I was like, I'm going to, it's going to be so beautifully carved and everything. And I came home without all that, but I was almost prouder of it uh, yeah. because I knew about all the work now that goes into making these. And it really is an art. Um, and like I said earlier, you know, to learn that from somebody so experienced is just it was an honor. Yeah, that's something you'll remember forever, no doubt. Most definitely. I think uh, I've heard that the when it comes to the Kilber Colonial, people say the 58 caliber is the most balanced. Um uh, but that is a much bigger ball <laughs> than the than the yeah. fifty. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that's a good choice for it. I built. Um, yeah. I didn't go with any fancy wood on mine. I built that Kibler um, Southern Mountain Rifle, but I went with cherry on the wood, and I'm really glad that I did. There's not a lot of those out there with cherry on them, and it's just yeah. sings in the light. So I I think you did the you did the right thing, man. Picking the the extra fancy maple, I think you'll enjoy that for for many years. Yep, I I sure hope so. It's uh it's a beautiful gun, and it, largely in part to to Jim. You know, I opened that box for the first time and just caught my breath when I mm-hmm. saw that wood grain. I didn't, I I didn't know that nature was capable of producing something so intricate. I mean, I was just standing there looking at it like this is wood. This is a this is from a tree. Yeah. Um, it was just amazing. The curl and the striping, and it just totally. It was dazzling. And I've seen these rifles online and everything, but to have it in front of me and then to have the privilege to work on this thing was just, it was awesome. That makes it all the more special. Yep. So talking a little bit about all of the work that went into the flintlock that you've built here, I kind of want to shift into some of the work that goes into your channel, because like you said, you're, you're a busy guy. You have a lot going on and you, I was, I rewatched your frontier clothes video. I think it's your most recent video here. I just watched it uh, yesterday, kind of preparing for our talk a little bit. And you said in that video that it took over 8,700 clicks. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Wow. I'm curious for anybody listening that watches your channel, what does your, or anybody interested in your channel now, what is your video pipeline and what does that look like? You know, kind of from your ideas and inspiration into going out and producing the video and then getting it back home and editing it and and getting it online. Sure. Um, 
everything, of course, starts with an idea or an inspiration, just like any project. Um, my ideas and, and stuff like that come from everything I wish I would have known when I started in the Frontier Trading Company program area at camp. Mm. As having just come out of my eighth grade year, um, I showed up. I wore sneakers for like the first four weeks of my work there with my outfit. Um, it was just ridiculous. Uh, I didn't know anything. There's no historical oversight. There's no no one person that you can turn to with questions. Mm -hmm. And the nature, of course, of working at a summer camp is that most everybody's in high school. And so there's really high turnover because people leave and launch their careers and yeah. stuff like that. So having come into this hobby blind and, and having done it just a few years ago, I definitely remember what my biggest questions were. And so those have so far formed the basis for some of my key videos, like that clothing video, um, which is pretty basic stuff. You know, for somebody that's been in this for a long time, um, it's it's not anything new probably for them. But for me, coming into this at the very beginning, I would I would have just died to have a resource like that. Mm -hmm. What I not to interrupt you, but what I really like about that video is that you cover everything all at once. And you, there's no there's no fat in it. You just start from the top and you just break it all down all at once. And when you're done watching that video, you have an idea of what to start looking for. Yeah. And that's that's when I say what I wish I would have had. That's, I think, the other half of it. Part of it's just the content itself. Um, I, I would have been equally excited, you know, to have a channel where each one of those articles of clothing was its own video in a big playlist. Mm -hmm. But what would have made it all the better is to just have it all in one and, and have it all together in one place. Here's the full package. And, and you know, hopefully someday I'll get to the point where I've reviewed enough resources that I can start including those as well and recommending people check out this for this part and that for that. Um, you know, that's the aspiration is to come to a point where I'm able to mentor others. But yeah, it's, it's largely a part of that package mentality here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you all the information I have on this topic in one video. And I don't care how long it is, because if you're really passionate about it the way that I was, um, then it's my hope that you'll watch the whole thing and that you'll get something out of it. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a really big part of it for me. This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1 in 24 and 1 in 22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. So, it, yeah, it starts with an idea, and that's informed from my time you know, very recently as a clueless beginner. I would still say that I'm a beginner, but I'm starting to get a grip on you know, what's acceptable and, and what's not and things like that. Um, but from the idea, it usually turns into a script pretty quickly. I type everything out in a Google Doc. Some things are word for word, some videos, and others are just outlined. Um, and which usually whichever I think will be best for the content. Um, the clothing video was a little bit of both. Some of my more lecture style videos, I did one on the Great Black Swamp, which is more from my region, but that one uh, was for the most part word for word. 
Um, and then it, it comes down to actually shooting the video, which, as I've said, is, is kind of a challenge. Um, I'm a cheap college kid, and I have cheap college kid equipment. So everything's filmed on an iPhone 8. Um, fortunately, that I mean, it happens to be the phone that I have, but mm-hmm. fortunately, it can shoot in 4K, which is awesome. It takes up a load of storage, uh, but it works. Um, before I go out and film, I clear my camera roll, I back everything up, I got a hard drive, and pretty much wipe my phone, and then I'll go out and film. Um, and I have, a, a, like I said, a broken tripod uh, that I ordered on Amazon. It's one of the legs is broken, but it's duct taped together. And then sometimes if I'm doing a video that's word for word, I'll duct tape an iPad to that as my teleprompter. Okay, and it sits yeah. right below the phone. Um, and even if I'm just outlining a video, I'll usually keep that there and let it hang. And mm-hmm. uh, for the teleprompter you know, purposes, I'll put a few keywords so that as I advance through the video, the outline advances with me. And that makes it easy to shoot everything in one take, which is another thing that a lot of professionals don't do. But you know, given my circumstances, I've got a phone on a tripod, and then there's me 15 or 20 feet away. And mm-hmm. walking back and forth and repositioning everything just isn't practical. So I run it all at once. Um, and that makes it really easy to stay organized when it comes time to edit. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll start that process without having to log all my clips and label them and put them into folders and, and deal with all that organizational stuff. Um, so it's, it's really very simple. I come back with the iPhone. I plug that into my laptop. Fortunately, my laptop is a little newer than my phone, um, so it can handle the footage. And uh, I use iMovie for everything. I'm definitely you know, pushing the, the limits of that platform, mm-hmm. but once again, it's cheap college kid life for now. So not really willing to make the investment into a better video editing software, given that this works right now, everything's working. So I'm going to, for now, keep it as is. But uh, I drag that into iMovie and start making cuts. And I'll start out with um, just, you know, first assembly kind of thing, going through, making rough cuts, um, making sure that I remove any Airplane sounds is a a big challenge for me, shooting videos for the most part in and around a large city. Mm. Um, There's car noises that are constantly coming up and I'll have to reshoot portions or I'll stand there quietly and wait for noise to die down. Mm -hmm. So I'll go through, cut out, you know, all the chaff. Yeah. Um, And then it's into like finer cutting. Um, This is all, you know, pretty typical video editing etiquette, but moving through final cuts and everything, beginning to... Um, structure things. Now I only have the words that were in my script or my outline and I can start to nail the transitions. And then something that I really like to do because many of my videos are talking head style videos where I stand there and speak into the camera is between those cuts, I will move the zoom level in and out from my mm-hmm. face, which gives it you know a little bit of, um, I don't know, it kind of spices things up. It yeah. keeps your attention. Um, and then there's final cuts always involves music, little transitions, um, maybe captions. And from there, it's uploaded to YouTube. And from then YouTube video player, as the video uploads, I will pull the uh, the chapter marks that I always put in my video descriptions where things fall throughout mm-hmm. the video. So that, you know, if you're watching, something's boring, you can skip to the next section. That way you're not leaving the video altogether because, you know, I wouldn't be sharing these things if I didn't think there was value there. It's not my intention to bore people. So you can always turn to this chapter um, chapter buttons as well. Yeah. It's kind of fun what you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, it's really a pretty simple process. Um, and I have a lot of fun with it. You know, fortunately I'm not just into the history. The video editing is fun too. Yeah. That's enabled me to come at this, 
um, and apply my passion, you know, without burning out, given everything else that I'm, I'm doing. Yeah. I think it, it can be a little bit easier to enjoy one part or the other, you know, being on camera or doing the editing. Uh, but the, there's a lot more work involved when you're doing both by yourself. That's for sure. Yeah, most definitely. And to be clear, I did not spend uh, a whole bunch of time tallying my clicks or anything yeah, yeah. Uh, for that video. I had a little click counter app um, for anybody that's listening that might have been you know, concerned picturing me in my room. <laughs> you know, thousands of tallies. Tally marks on um, the wall. Yeah. Yeah. But between, you know, all that cutting and clipping and everything, having everything in one take and then it's just it's cutting for hours for mm -hmm. every video. Um, it's, you know, at about. I did the breakdown one time, and I think in terms of the clicks, it comes down to about an average of 12 clicks per minute for about eight hours, spits out around 8,000 clicks. So mm. it's really not too much. Mm -hmm. um, when you think when you think about it all as one big number, it's a lot. But spread out over the course of yeah. a week as I edit a video, it's not unmanageable. Mm-hmm. That's great. I mean, I I think I said it before, but I mean, good on you for, uh, you know, not waiting until you have all the, the right equipment or the fancy equipment, you know, you're getting out there and you're doing it. Uh, and that's, that's just a really great attitude to have. I, I can't commend you enough for that, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm just, you know, I do the best with what I've got. And uh, I hope that you know, the passion shows through above any editing errors or anything like that. That's, that's really been my mentality is just to express the passion and to hopefully be a helpful resource for other people who are just beginning to get involved. Yeah, for sure. You know, kind of speaking to that, I guess I think it's the last question that we have here, you know, kind of scheduled, but what do you think living history looks like in 10 years? I mean, I think in the last 10 years, it's certainly changed a lot and you're at the front end of kind of guiding it into another generation here. I'm just curious as to, to where you, where you see this going. You know, the, the community yeah. as a whole, not necessarily exclusively your work, but I'd like to, I'd, I'd be curious to, for you to speak to that as well. Sure. Um, and one characteristic that I think just personifies this community is passion. There's a lot of passionate people and this is a hobby or a profession for some people that demands a lot of time spent researching things. There's definitely a financial commitment. And in order to do things right, you have to have some kind of direct mentor. And to get a mentor, unless you've got somebody in your family or something like that, you have to have been around long enough to prove that you're serious so that other people will take you seriously and make the effort to connect you with somebody that can step up and be that mentor figure. So what I'm getting at is that there's a lot of different commitments that need to be made with your time and your effort and your financial resources. And the people who make these commitments and invest in themselves through this hobby um, you know, from my perspective as a young person, it produces both mentors and critics. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with either. Both groups will correct you when you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and that can trigger you to go back and do more research. Both are critical, I think, to the hobby. They, they both need to exist. Um, but that passion is, I hope, what will drive this hobby forwards. Whichever you know, camp you happen to fall in, if you are serving as an active mentor to a younger person that's involved or not, um, I, I hope that it's that passion that will sustain this and carry it into a, a brighter future. Um, that I think 10 years from now, I think that the progress of this living history, muzzle loading, uh, hobby and, and living history, I, I guess you could call it a, just a whole division of, of a, a larger hobby that is this appreciation for history itself. But 
in any case, I think that that revolves around heightening the profile online to attract younger people because that's key. I would never have gotten into this if not for videos from Jim Kibler and the NMLRA and stuff like that. And when I say that, I'm speaking of muzzleloading specifically. I had mm -hmm. my start in living history. You know, that was something that was already close to me. But moving into muzzleloading and exploring other branches of this larger hobby, the Internet's a great resource. And that's the way that younger people are going to continue to become involved. And then it's this concept of serving as a mentor instead of a critic. Um, a lot of people get really passionate. They get invested into it. And it's easy to fall into one camp or the other. Um, but, you know, in general, if people are willing to serve as mentors and younger folks like you and I and many others are willing to keep producing content that will reach new and greater numbers of young people, um, then as a community, if we have those two things, we don't need another historical movie um, or something like that. You know, we don't have to rely on pop culture or mm -hmm. any kind of you know, there's these things that come and go and cause spikes in the community and people get real interested and then fall away. But that's exactly that. People get real interested and then they fall away. It's these fleeting moments. And it seems like in the past, that's something that folks in this hobby have kind of relied on. I hope that 10 years from now, we as a community will be saying, hey, we've got this. We don't have to rely on other people. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to grow and that's on us to handle. Nobody's yeah. coming to save the day. Hollywood's not going to come and help. Um, and there needs to be active outreach to the rest of the population. And like I said, I see the Internet as being a great way to do that. And once they come in, we need to welcome them and walk with them through their mistakes and the learning curve and everything else that's involved in getting involved in this hobby. So I think I think the outlook is bright as long as people continue to um, produce good content on the Internet to attract younger people and act as mentors as much as they can. Yeah. I think we've we've talked about it a little bit before the show, but um, you know, kind of one of the talking points that I bring up a lot when these discussions start on the forums and things about that we, we need another Jeremiah Johnson or we need another Revenant. Um, I think that while I understand the the desire for that, I mean, I would love another Revenant, you know, kind of a contemporary, you know, historical focused movie. I, I'm not expecting it anytime soon, and I think now we've very well surpassed the amount of historical content like we're talking about here on YouTube than Hollywood will ever produce from our own community of people that love all of this and care about it and want to see it move forward. And that's a passion that we will never see from Hollywood. They will never care about it as much as the community does and have those community members like yourself, like Bob McBride, Mark Humphreys, Mike Bellevue, and a load of others that I, I, you know, I can't name everybody, but those people stepping out here in the early years of all of this and making sure that somebody that cares about it is getting information out there to bring more people in is going to do more good than I think anything ever will for the sport, for the community and for history in general to make sure that all of this is preserved in some form or another. Definitely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Kind of on that, I know we, we only have a few minutes left here. Um, we talked a little bit previously about, you know, kind of the Internet and, and how all of this plays out. I was just curious if you want, were, uh, wanted to talk about that any a little bit, you know, like concerns about YouTube censorship are, you know, kind of starting to leak into some of of what you and I are doing here. And I didn't know if you wanted to you know, have anything if you had anything to say on that. Sure. Um, you know, it's something I've had to confront recently as I come into this muzzle loading community. 
Um, there's nothing inherently censorable about anything that I've done thus far. And I realize that I'm beginning to step into a world that is slowly being censored and um, is certainly not being promoted the way that other content is. I don't see the YouTube algorithm picking up any videos about muzzle loading and running it on the front page. Um, I think that that's obviously it's a detriment to the community when it comes to using the internet as this tool that I've talked about to reach out to young people unless that content is somehow put in front of them or they're introduced to it, it's going to be increasingly difficult to leverage the internet as this valuable tool that it has been for most all other hobbies and communities. Um, and so censorship definitely poses a threat, but it's also not something that I'm afraid of. I'm very soon we'll be publishing this video about my rifle build and there it is right in the middle of the screen, me standing there with it. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about prior to the show, you know, using specific words that YouTube may not necessarily associate with firearms yet, uh, like flintlock or, uh, I mean, just people call them smoke poles. Yep. There's all kinds of funny stuff out there. So, I mean, if the whole community were to adopt language like that, we could maybe squeeze by, um, and avoid censorship in the near future. But, you know, to do that kind of degrades from the authenticity of the hobby. Too. Yeah. It is what it is. You yeah. can't change that. Um, and unfortunately, these art forms that we pursue as footlocks can be used to hurt other people. Um, I guess that is in itself isn't unfortunate. You know, these are tools, they're weapons. That's what they're designed to do at their core. The unfortunate part is that the hobby has a potential to be villainized. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's definitely something I think that we can all do good things to avoid. Um, obviously, there's nobody out committing any you know, mass shootings with a flintlock rifle. But in general, being responsible gun owners and um, helping to break down the stigma around gun ownership, I think, is important. And as far as it goes with muzzle loading and building flintlocks and things like that, um, I mean, even percussion cap rifles, anything that you build yourself is an art form. And if you can communicate that to people um, before you communicate the idea that it's a weapon, I think that that's also really important. Um, that ability to approach it as art and to communicate the artistic side of things is uh, what allowed my university to grant me $2,000 in funding to pursue a build of my own. Mm -hmm. And it's what's led to you know, many of my classmates and coworkers in college who are a little younger um, and haven't been exposed to gun ownership and have some pretty strong opinions against it to embrace this. And you know, they're congratulatory when they see the pictures of it. They feel the, the pride that I have towards having built my own rifle. And that, you know, when you approach it as art and explain how difficult it is to build it and what a process and everything that you learned it just breaks down all of the uh, all of the stigma against uh, firearms and, and the idea that you know you're dangerous if you own one um, and things like that. Yeah. So I think that the community, you know, in embracing the artistic side of it, which we already do for the most part in this muzzle loading community, and then in uh, in just you can't be too afraid. I think of the the censorship. We're going to have to continue to build a community. Um, and unfortunately, if you know, YouTube decides to demonetize videos or outright delete them or censor them in other ways, I hope that the passion that I've outlined throughout my time on the show today shows through and the community is able to move elsewhere and adopt and, and change as times change. I think that's 
Wow. Very well said. I <laughs> very well said, my friend. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's, that's my hope is that people will, will see the art in this and will appreciate that before they see the, um, maybe, maybe scary side of gun ownership that they don't fully understand. I think fear of course is always born of a failure to understand. And so in educating and expressing the art, I think it'll, it'll allow other people to value muzzle loading as a whole definitely, um, in a new way. I think as long as there are people in the community willing to get out in front of somebody else who isn't in the community and doesn't know a whole lot about it and present it in the best possible light, you know, focusing on that history, on the art and on what makes these special. I mean, makes the history special, makes the art special, makes makes the firearm special. I think as long as, you know, there's somebody there that cares about it out in front to define it, I think that um, it can never be never be villainized or or, dis, or totally extinguished for sure. Yeah, it's it's a classic piece of Americana. I mean, to me, nothing screams America or the frontier or a pride in your history like a flintlock rifle. It's just it's a beautiful, artistic, um, it just it's a it's it's a work of art, and it embodies so much of our frontier past um, that you know as long as there's anybody with any sense of patriotism around, I think that there's going to be a value for towards muzzle loading and and flintlocks in general. Yeah. Well, to kind of close it out here, Alex, where can people find you online if they're not familiar with you? Kind of give a little shout out to, to what you do, and I'll make sure to link everything in the show notes so that anybody listening can find Alex here as soon as as soon as they click a button. <laughs> yeah, so uh, my primary means of communicating my passion for the 18th century is on YouTube. My YouTube channel, Frontier Trading Company, um, is available to everybody. Outside of YouTube, I really only have a channel on Patreon, uh, which is a website in which you, know, you can follow me and sponsor my videos financially if you have the means. Um, and you know that's a great way to support. I believe I do have one tier. Um, it's a monthly contribution that will put your name in the credits section as my video rolls at the end. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in or if you're just interested in supporting in general, um, that's another place that I would point you towards, but YouTube is all I've got for now. I've thought about blogging and starting a website or an Instagram page or Facebook or something like that. But so far I haven't taken that plunge. That's great. Well, I'll be sure to link that. So anybody listening can find that stuff. Alex, thank you so much for coming onto the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. It's been great speaking with you and, uh, I hope anybody listening is able to get some value out of it. I'd like to thank Alex again for taking time out of his busy schedule to sit down and talk with me. Uh, it was just a, a really good time, and I'm looking forward to keeping in touch with him and uh, having him here on the show a little bit later this year. Maybe we can get him back uh, a little later this fall and hear about some of his historic treks and some of his other videos. It's very refreshing to see somebody young getting into the sport and to hear about how they got into the sport. I think for anybody interested in muzzleloading and living history, getting young people involved is a, a high priority. We're seeing a lot of our friends start to get up there in age, and I think that causes a lot of concern for the community and for the hobby. 
Um, but I think Alex brings a great perspective here, sharing how he got involved, what hooked him. And I think that's something that we can all pay attention to and take out to our next camp, our next trek, our next muzzleloading shoot. Uh, and, you know, the next time we see somebody out there, maybe we can imagine them as the next frontier trading company and bring them into the fold and uh, make sure that we have, you know, a next generation of muzzleloading and living history enthusiasts here to carry on this tradition and preserve American history. Like I said, I've got links to the Frontier Trading Company YouTube channel in the description down below. Please check it out. Please subscribe. As of recording right now, he's nearly to 5,000, and I hope that we can get him past the 5,000 mark here as soon as possible. His content is very good, and he's very deserving of continuing to climb the YouTube ranks here. I, I'm very excited to see this channel grow and to, uh, and to see Alex grow along with it. I think uh, we can expect some really great things from him in the coming months and the coming years. To learn more about anything muzzleloading and, uh, and living history related, please visit ilovemuzzleloading.com. We try to cover every angle of muzzleloading, whether you're a traditionalist or a modern muzzleloader, as well as the gear and accoutrements that go along with it. I have a big list there from the CLA show of a ton of the artisans and craftspeople that were there. You know, so maybe consider uh, checking that list out and, uh, and picking up some of your gear as we head towards fall and kind of the trekking season. Uh, picking up something new from a, from a small business or, or a, you know, a single operating artist out there. I picked up a lot of really neat small pieces at the CLA show, and it was fantastic to get out and see everybody after kind of a long couple years here. If you're interested in the stuff that Alex is talking about on the Frontier Trading Company YouTube channel, check out some of the fall reenactments and the fall living history events that pop up just about everywhere um, every fall. And there's usually a couple in every state. I know in Indiana here we have Mississinawa 1812 coming up, as well as the Feast of the Hunter's Moon, Kokomo Foster. And uh, Five Medals at the Trace is coming back this year. So all these events are run really by a lot of local nonprofits and small business owners. And checking these out and supporting them, you're supporting those events and making sure that they continue. But you're also supporting the preservation of American history and the small businesses and the mom and pop shops that set up and display their wares and demonstrate early American crafts and military history, all at these events, you know, so making sure that those events continue is super important. So check out some of those events and uh, I'm sure there's something in your local area in a short drive that you can uh, really make a day out of and, and really enjoy seeing some American living history in action. Once again, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for watching. If you could rate the podcast wherever you're listening, uh, giving us a little star rating, uh, regardless of how you feel about it, you know, if you don't like it, you can leave a one-star review. But um, if you could leave a star rating, um, tell the algorithm what you think about the show and uh, maybe leave a little comment as to why you enjoy it or don't enjoy it. Um, that really helps us get out and, uh, and reach some more people to try to get them into muzzleloading and living history. I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for watching or listening. Listening. It's the podcast. Um, but uh, thank you, and we'll catch you next time. In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. 
Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com. 